on a spring afternoon of the year 19-blank, when our continent lay under such threatening weather for whole months, Gustav Aschenbach, or von Aschenbach, as his name read officially after his fiftieth birthday, had left his apartment on the Prinzregentenstrasse in Munich and had gone for a long walk. Overwrought by the trying and precarious work of the forenoon, which had demanded a maximum wariness, prudence, penetration and rigour of the will, the writer had not been able, even after the noon meal, to break the impetus of the productive mechanism within him, that motus animi continuous, which constitutes, according to Cicero, the foundation of eloquence, and he had not attained the healing sleep, which, what with the increasing exhaustion of his strength, he needed in the middle of each day. So he had gone outdoors soon after tea, in the hopes that air and movement would restore him and prepare him for a profitable evening. It was the beginning of May, and after cold, damp weeks a false midsummer had set in. The English gardens, although the foliage was still fresh and sparse, were as pungent as in August, and in the parts nearer the city had been full of conveyances and promenaders. At the Almeister, which he had reached by quieter and quieter paths, Aschenbach had surveyed for a short time the Wirtsgarten with its lively crowds and its border of cabs and carriages. From here, as the sun was sinking, he had started home, outside the park across the open fields, and since he felt tired and a storm was threatening from the direction of Furring, he waited at the North Cemetery for the tram which would take him directly back to the city. It happened that he found no one in the station or its vicinity. There was not a vehicle to be seen, either on the paved Ungerstrasse with its solitary glistening rails stretching out towards Schwabing, or on the Furringer Chaussee. Behind the fences of the stonemasons' establishments, where the crosses, memorial tablets and monuments standing for sale formed a second uninhabited burial ground, there was no sign of life, and opposite him the Byzantine structure of the funeral hall lay silent in the reflection of the departing day, its façade, ornamented in luminous colours with Greek crosses and hieratic paintings, above which were displayed inscriptions symmetrically arranged in gold letters, and texts chosen to bear on the life beyond, such as, They enter into the dwelling of the Lord, or The light of eternity shall shine upon them. And for some time, as he stood waiting, he found a grave diversion in spelling out the formulas, and letting his mind's eye lose itself in their transparent mysticism, when, returning from his reveries, he noticed in the portico, above the two apocalyptic animals guarding the steps, a man whose somewhat unusual appearance gave his thoughts an entirely new direction. Whether he had just now come out from the inside through the bronze door, or had approached and mounted from the outside unobserved, remained uncertain. Aschenbach, without applying himself especially to the matter, was inclined to believe the former. Of medium height, thin, smooth-shaven, and noticeably pug-nosed, the man belonged to the red-haired type, and possessed the appropriate fresh milky complexion. Obviously he was not of Bavarian extraction, since at least the white and straight-brimmed straw hat that covered his head gave his appearance the stamp of a foreigner, of someone who had come from a long distance. 
To be sure, he was wearing the customary knapsack strapped across his shoulders and a belted suit of rough yellow wool. His left arm was resting on his thigh and his grey storm cape was thrown across it. In his right hand he held a cane with an iron ferrule, which he had stuck diagonally into the ground, and, with his feet crossed, was leaning his hip against the crook. His head was raised so that the Adam's apple protruded hard and bare on a scrawny neck emerging from a loose sport shirt, and he was staring sharply off into the distance, with colourless red-lidded eyes, between which stood two strong vertical wrinkles peculiarly suited to his short, turned-up nose. Thus, and perhaps his elevated position helped to give the impression, his bearing had something majestic and commanding about it, something bold or even savage.' 